Good morning and welcome to our time of worship today. We gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the Lord calls us to worship this morning in words from the prophet Isaiah saying, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon and as we come together this morning to seek and worship the Lord our God, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, hear the words of the Apostle Paul concerning the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Even so, we ought to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us hear also a brief instruction concerning the purpose for which the sacrament was ordained. When our Lord said, do this in remembrance of me, he ordained this holy supper as a constant memorial and a visible proclamation of his death. The Apostle Paul also teaches us that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. As we partake of this communion supper, therefore, we bear witness that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, that he took upon himself our flesh and blood, that he bore the wrath of God on the cross for us. We also confess that he came to earth to bring us to heaven, that he was condemned to die, that we might be pardoned, that he endured the suffering and death of the cross, that we might live through him and that he was once forsaken by God, that we might forever be accepted by him. 
The sacrament thus confirms us in God's abiding love and covenant faithfulness. By his holy supper, our Lord seals to our hearts the promises of God's gracious covenant and so assures us that we belong to his covenant family. Let us then be persuaded as we eat and drink that God will always love us and accept us as his children for the sake of his son. Our Lord promises, moreover, that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are fed with his crucified body and shed blood. To this end, he gives us his life-giving spirit, through whom the body and blood of our Lord become life-giving nourishment for our souls. Thus, he unites us with himself and so imparts the precious benefits of his sacrifice to all who partake in faith. The Holy Sacrament is also a means of grace that unites us with one another in the bond of the Spirit. For the Apostle says that we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Thus, even as he unites us with himself, he strengthens the bond of communion between us, his children. Finally, the remembrance of our Lord's death revives in us the hope of his return. Since he commanded us to do this until he comes, the Lord assures us that he will come again to take us to himself. So as we commune with him now under the veil of these earthly elements, we are assured that we shall sometime behold him face to face and rejoice in the glory of his appearing. Our Lord Jesus will surely do what he has promised. Let us draw near to his table, then believing that he will strengthen us in faith, unite us in love, and establish us more firmly in the hope of his coming. To this end, may we look to the Lord our God in prayer. Almighty God, with one accord we give you thanks for all the blessings of your grace. But most of all, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We most humbly thank you that your son came to us in human form, that he lived a perfect life on earth, that he died for us on the cross, and that he arose victoriously from the dead. We bless you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for the gospel of reconciliation, for the church universal, for the ministry and sacraments of the church, and for the blessed hope of everlasting life. We pray, gracious Father, that you will grant us your Holy Spirit, that through this sacrament our souls may truly be fed with the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us the full assurance of your grace as we draw near to your holy table, filling our hearts with humble gratitude for your mercies. Unite us more fully with our blessed Lord, and so also with one another. Enable us in newness of life to pledge ourselves in service to Christ and all your children and lift our hearts to you, that in all the troubles and sorrows of this life we may persevere in the living hope of the coming of our Savior in glory. Answer us, O God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, a passage which is a favorite of mine and a favorite of a lot of other people as well. 
I also want to point out as we go to this passage and to the sermon that follows that almost exactly five years ago, on the first Sunday of October 2015, I preached a sermon very much like this as my first sermon after being installed as pastor here at High River Christian Reformed Church. And I say this to let you know that I'm coming back to this on purpose. I believe that it's a theme that fits very well with our hope of coming to the Lord's table this morning and a theme that we need to address quite often. So our scripture reading again from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So far, the reading from God's word this Lord's day. May he add his blessing as we turn our hearts toward him. Let's look to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, looking to you to speak from your word and to work in us what is pleasing to you, we ask that you would give us ears to hear once again what your spirit is saying to the churches. And Father, we pray that as we hear this message from Ephesians chapter 2 of your saving grace, that Father, we would look to you in awe and wonder, marveling that you would save sinners such as ourselves through the precious blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A king sits on an ancient throne thinking about all of his accomplishments, all of the foes that he has slain, the armies he has routed, the cities that he has built, all the things that he has achieved in the course of his reign. A prophet of God appears before him thinking of some of his less famous acts and the prophet tells him a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then the scriptures tell us that as he listened to this story told by the prophet, the king's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. And then I imagine that there was a moment when the prophet and the king locked eyes, and even before the next words were spoken, the king knew. He knew in his heart what that next word was going to be. You are the man, said Nathan, the prophet of God, and not in a good way. And David, the shepherd king, is undone for all that he has accomplished, all of his songs and prayers, all of his battles and victories, everything that he has ever done is now completely eclipsed in this one moment where he stands exposed before God for what he truly is and what he has become an adulterer, and a murderer, just another bad king of Israel. If we are honest, we are not surprised. The history of humanity, even the history of humanity as it is recorded in the Bible, is time and time again the history of a people who are overwhelmed and overtaken by sin. In Scripture, we read of the faults and failures of all, from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to Noah and Abraham and Moses, to the kings and prophets of Israel, David not least among those. And sometimes I think we are comforted to think that the people of God who have gone before us were really not that different than we ourselves. But I think sometimes we may also be tempted to think if I had been there, if I had walked that path, if I had been in that one's shoes, then things would certainly have turned out differently. But we have to be careful, because in that moment when we begin to think like David, when we look at someone else's sin and say, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die, he must pay. In that very moment, the word of God stands before us as the prophet stood before David saying, truly, truly, but it's you. You're the one. You have done this. You are no better. Because the fact of the matter is that sin is endemic to the human race. It touches us at the very core of who we are, polluting everything that we think and say and do. Didn't we read of this just moments ago in Ephesians chapter 2? Remember, Paul wrote, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, the world goes on in the same old way, and we are still sinners, even in the best life. Or if you prefer the old apostle to the German martyr, listen to Romans chapter 3, as Paul quotes from the Old Testament, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then, of course, the Apostle John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? We are all sinners. We have all sinned. In the words of Nathan the prophet, you are the man and so am I and not in a good way. And this indictment applies to all. The words of an ancient liturgy echo across the centuries, I confess to God the Almighty and to you, my brothers and my sisters, I have sinned to my own fault in my thoughts and in my words and in the deeds that I have done and in what I have failed to do. I have sinned, mea culpa, through my fault, mea culpa, through my most grievous fault, mea maxima culpa. The thing is, as noted by a character in no less a movie than The Incredibles, when everyone's super, no one is. Conversely, when everyone's guilty, it may appear that no one is. But we cannot let that be our attitude. We cannot. The only thing that could be worse than some kind of belief that other people are guilty and we are not would be some kind of a belief that it doesn't really matter anyway. We are all guilty. But since we are all guilty, what difference does it make? And it's easy for us to fall into that same trap that caught King David to look at other people and to say, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, forgetting, perhaps, that we are that man. And maybe this is a particularly easy problem for pastors and leaders. Some time ago in another congregation, a young man came to me after the service quite upset, and he accused me of aiming the sermon specifically at him. It was not true. I truly had no idea that what I said that Sunday was going to be particularly convicting to anyone, never mind to him. What is true, though, is that at the best of times when preparing a sermon, I am well aware, and I think so are most of my colleagues, that our first audience is always ourselves. 
when we preach the word. We preach to ourselves. When God's word comes with convicting power, it comes with convicting power into our own hearts first. One of the reasons why do not be afraid comes up so often in my preaching. Well, the reason it comes up so often in my preaching is because actually it comes up so often in Scripture. But the reason why it gets so much emphasis is because that is something that I personally struggle with. And I think maybe more than anyone else in the room, I regularly need that reminder because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We may say with confidence, I may say with confidence, I will not be afraid. It's true, we are all sinners. It's also true, I am a sinner. But here's the thing. Even though Ephesians chapter 2 highlights the fact that we are all sinners, telling us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's not where the book of Ephesians began. And that's not where it ends. Paul did not address this beautiful little epistle to the vile, disgusting sinners who are at Ephesus. He did not write to the totally depraved who are faithless in Christ Jesus. No, that's not how Paul saw the church, and it's not how he addressed her. Rather, in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, he wrote, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. That's right. To the saints, to those who have been set apart for God at Ephesus, to those at Ephesus who are holy in Christ Jesus. Because it's true, sin is endemic to the human race, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even that verse isn't really about sin. What Paul actually wrote in its context is, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So as often as we have used Ephesians 2 and Romans 3 to prove the point that we are all sinners, that's really not the main point. The author of Scripture would rather point us in a different direction. He would have us to understand that all have sinned and there is no one righteous, not even one. But in spite of that, there remains over and above all, a righteousness from God that is by faith for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For we are not justified by our good works. We are not justified by the works of the law. We are not justified by our goodness or by our theological knowledge. Paul says we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That means that in Christ we are no longer defined by the length and breadth and height and depth of our sin. In Christ we are defined by the length and breadth and height and depth of God's love and mercy and grace. And over and over again in this precious little book we are reminded not so much of who we were, but of who we have become, of who we are becoming in Christ. For God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So if I could leave you with just one thing this morning, it would be that. Learn to see both yourself and one another in this way. Learn to see yourself and one another as sinners and saints. For we are all both. The playing field is level. We are all sinners. There is no one righteous, not even one. That is not in himself. Not one of us can claim to be better than another. No one can claim any righteousness of our own. We are sinners. Still, in Christ, we are saints, sanctified, holy, set apart to God and to his service. And it's this way of seeing that is so important to our life together in the church of Jesus Christ. This ability to recognize that while we are all sinners, we are all by nature children of wrath, we share that same history still in Christ. And by his grace, we have, according to Scripture, become partakers of the divine nature. That's why Paul wrote in Second Corinthians, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if we stop seeing each other from a worldly point of view, if we stop ranking ourselves on a scale of human righteousness, trying to determine who stands higher and who lower, if we stop worrying about who's the greater or the lesser sinner, if we stop passing judgment and comparing ourselves to ourselves for a little while, then we might find that we have the freedom to actually see Christ in one another. We may find that looking through the eyes of grace, 
we can discern his body in the people who gather around us to worship in his name. Even David, who fell so often and so hard that he is held up in the canons of Dort as an example of the serious and outrageous sins by which some may be carried away, is not remembered that way in Scripture. When Paul comes to remember his life in Acts chapter 13, he doesn't point to David, the adulterer and the murderer, nor does he point to David, the giant slayer. He simply recalls that God testified concerning him, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And that's enough. Because whatever he did, whatever sins he committed, the shepherd king's righteousness was never his own any more than your righteousness is yours or mine is mine. David found hope in God alone and for all his faults and failures, for all of his sins, even the serious and outrageous ones. He was received by God as righteous in Christ Jesus, as are you and as am I. Once again, then, as I did five years ago, there's something that I have to share with you. We stand here this morning as sinners and saints, not either or, but both and. We are all sinners, you and I, even in the best of lives, and chances are ours are not the best of lives. Even so, there is something that I must confess to you. Now, of course, this is a dangerous statement for a pastor to make. The author, Garrison Keeler tells the story of Pastor Inquist of Lake Wobegon, a fictional town in central Minnesota, who turns one evening and cracks his knee on the corner of his desk. And all of the words that come to mind when he does that are not words that are available to a Lutheran pastor in central Minnesota. And there are those times when he just longs to stand before his congregation and to let them know that he is no different and certainly no better than any of them. He thinks that he would like to just stand up one Sunday morning and say, people, I have a confession to make. But he knows that as soon as the words are out of his mouth, someone will think, oh my, he's had an affair. And their second thought will be, I wonder with who. Well, I am not Pastor Inkvist. But as Charles Spurgeon once said, I have walked with that stick. I have known that fear. And as psychologist and author Dan Allender has written, most leaders avoid naming their failures due to fear. And fear is a completely understandable motivator. If a leader were to openly acknowledge that he is frequently mistaken, that he is deeply flawed and that he will continue to miss the mark on occasion, the ramifications could be disastrous. A leader with that much candor, writes Allen, Allender, could lose the confidence of his staff, his clients could take their business elsewhere, and his board could fire him. 
at least those are the fears that keep us silent. I think he's right. But still, I have a confession to make here this morning. I confess to God, the Almighty, and to you, my brothers and my sisters, I have sinned to my own fault in my thoughts and in my words and in the deeds that I have done and and perhaps most of all in what I have failed to do. More still, through my own grievous fault, I have let fear, I have let the fact that I often fail to trust God as I ought keep me from trusting you to simply accept me on those terms. To use Dan Allender's words this morning, your pastor is deeply flawed. And he will continue to miss the mark on occasion. Having said that, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and that line from the Heidelberg resonates so well with me, And even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned or been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And please understand that if I am to preach that to you or to anyone, then I have to believe. I have to believe it for myself. And if this is true, if this is true for you as well as for me, then I have to have the audacity to stand here before you this morning and ask you, please forgive me. Forgive me for those times when I have been deeply flawed and for those times when I have missed the mark and for those times when I have not been willing to admit it. Please forgive me. Of course, it won't always be easy and the road ahead won't always be smooth. There are times when we all fail to live as the saints we are in Christ. And there will be times when I fail to live as the person that I have been called to be and created to be in Jesus. Still, in spite of that, we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And in Christ, we are right with God and heirs to life everlasting. So we stand here together as sinners this morning, confessing that we have all grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and have never truly kept any of them. But we stand here as well as saints, confessing with that great multitude whom no man can number from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Please say this with me. Without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants 
and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. This is the gospel. This is the good news proclaimed here this morning at the table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful that though we could not stand in our own works or in our own righteousness, you have not left us to ourselves. You have not left us to perish in our sin, though we so richly deserved exactly that fate. Instead, because of the great love that you have for your people, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin with his precious blood. And you raised us up with him and you seated us with him by faith in heavenly places that in the ages to come you might show forth the exceeding riches of your glory and grace in your kindness to us in your Son, our Savior. Father, we thank you that you have called us into your presence to worship you, and we give you praise for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you also for the invitation now given to come to the table of our Savior Jesus Christ to worship and to be blessed and to receive from you all the grace that you have for us in that Holy Supper, that, Father, we may be strengthened in our faith, that we may be renewed in our hope, that we may be established in love for you and for one another as we live and walk in the Spirit of our Savior Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Please join with me as we profess our faith this morning in the ancient words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We are sent on our way this morning with words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul wrote, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So as we go on our way, we look to God for his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen.